Is screen time for children all bad? And how much is too much? Pamela Druckerman will be here to talk about two new books, The Art of Screen Time and Be the Parent, Please. Was Cabrini Green, Chicago's massive public housing project, doomed to failure? Ben Austin will join us to talk about his book, High Risers, Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing. Plus, we'll talk about what we in the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Druckerman joins us now from Paris. She is a contributing opinion writer for The Times, the author of Bringing Up Bebe, and the forthcoming There Are No Grown-Ups. Is it There Are No Grown-Ups or There Are No Grown-Ups? I think I'll read it that way. A Midlife Coming-of-Age Story. Pamela, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you reviewed two books this week in the book review. The first one is The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life by Anya Kamenetz. And then Be the Parent, Please, Stop Banning Seesaws and Start Banning Snapchat, Strategies for Solving the Real Parenting Problems by Naomi Schaefer Riley. Are these yes. opposite books? They look at a lot of the same research and they have some of the same conclusions, but I would say one of them is calmer about screen time and the other is stricter. Okay. All right. So let's start with the calmer one, which I'm guessing is Kamenetz. And let's start with the author. Who is Anya Kamenetz and, and what brings her to write about this? She is the lead digital education correspondent for NPR. She's written a couple previous books about education. And she's also a sort of late 30-something mother of two daughters. So she comes to it both as a kind of reporter and also as a parent who's going through, experiencing these problems herself. And does she write generally about education or specifically about digital education? She focuses on digital education. Got so it. this is really up her alley. Yeah. All right. And then Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who is she? She is a former columnist for the New York Post who's now a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And she's also written a couple of previous books not about education per se, but she did a book on interfaith marriage and she did one on um, Native Americans. So she's kind of run the gamut. Okay. So this is, these are both looking at an issue that I think vexes and perplexes every parent today, right? Which is essentially how much technology is good for your kids, how much is bad, what should you be doing, what should you not be doing? And like, do you have any choice in this matter? Right? Right. Okay, right. so what what does Anya argue in, in The Art of Screen Time? Well, Anya basically compares screens to food, and she takes inspiration from Michael Pollan's sort of famous dictate, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. She says, enjoy screens, not too much, mostly together. And the idea is that, yes, you know, some kids will go overboard and too much food would be bad, but taken in moderation and done with kind of a spirit of enjoyment and in limited doses, screens can be absolutely fine. Her idea is that you can enjoy screens together as a family, that there are educational benefits, but you just shouldn't let it go overboard. And she, like Riley, also looks at the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations and kind of grapples with those and then compares them to how much screen time kids actually have, which is a lot more than the recommendation, as you can imagine. So the American Academy of Pediatrics says essentially no screens until the age of two, right? And then... Well, uh, they actually revised two years ago their recommendations and said before 18 months, it's okay to kind of Skype with grandma. And then after 18 months, you can have an hour a day till about age five but the parent should watch with the child and kind of treat screen time, screens like you would a book and discuss the characters and what's happening. I'm sensing there are some grandparents on the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics. <laughs> That's what that revision says to me. But what does that mean when Anya Kamenet says, look at the screen together? Because I don't imagine, for example, that most, say, 13-year-old girls are going to want mom to be looking through their Snapchat or their Instagram feed alongside them. Well, I think the recommendation from Kamenetz is mostly for younger kids mm-hmm. that she sort of says kids that age need adult kind of help. I think um, the American Academy of Pediatrics says parents should be, quote, media mentors for their kids where you where screens can have benefits, but only if 
you as a parent are kind of interacting with the child as they're watching. So parents, Which I have to say as a parent is a big disappointment because we famously use screen time as our kind of alone time to do what we want to do. Right, right. Also, I imagine it's punitive in the sense that the parent then has to be really interested in, you know, a specific Minecraft world or in, you know, whatever <laughs> horrible game your child is, you know, currently obsessed with. Why? I Absolutely. Mean, what's the benefit of that? Just to, just to make sure that your child doesn't get sort of sucked alone into the vortex or to make it more social or why? Oh, I think that the benefits of screens come when they are really used in an interactive way and that if you just kind of zone out for hours watching the screen, it's less beneficial. One of the things I thought interesting about Kamenitz's argument, correct me if I have this wrong, is that she says, you know, other activities should be prioritized and then kind of when all that's done, then you allow for screens. What's the well, what's the reason behind that? Or is that wrong? Well, the idea is that, you know, the research on screens is inconclusive. We don't actually know how terrible they are or how mm-hmm. good they are for you because you can't really experiment on babies and kind of expose them to screens and then measure their brains. There are correlations. We know about correlations between obesity and screens. We know that kids sleep less if they don't have screens, but we don't know exactly what they do. But we do know that, you know, there are trade-offs if you spend, you know, as a lot of kids do on average, kind of six at four to six hours a day on screens, that excludes other activities. And maybe what's bad about screens is what you don't do because you're on screens, not the screens themselves. So Kamenet and also the American Academy of Pediatrics say, do everything else first. Do your homework first. Make sure that you've exercised for an hour a day. Interact with other human beings for an hour or so. Have screen-free dinners so you're talking to your parents. And then if there's end sleep, you know, the 8 to 12 hours a day, the kids need to sleep. And then if there's still time left, then you can have screens. Okay, but then that raises two questions. One is, one of the things that we do know from research on grown-ups, which I then think we can extrapolate to kids, is that if you look at screens late at night, that that sort of interferes with your metabolic kind of process and your or your, your melatonin production and can lead to awakenedness right before bedtime. All of these authors say no screens before bed, no screens in bedrooms ever. Okay. Exactly because it interferes with your sleep. So kids should not have a computer in their room. Kids shouldn't have a computer in their room. They shouldn't be allowed to sleep next to their phones and no screens an hour before bedtime. The idea is that if you sleep less, then mm-hmm. there are all kinds of knock-on effects. Like it's harder to learn the next day. It's harder to remember what you learned in school. Now, does either author, Naomi Schaefer-Riley and Be the Parent, Please, or Anya Kamenetz in the Artist Scream Time differentiate between different kinds of screens? Or is it like the Wii, is the TV, is Hulu, is your phone, <sighs> is the iPad, is the Kindle, is the Nook? Yeah. I mean, they talk about the different kinds of content you get on these screens. So violent content is... They're, they're both quite against. Kamenetz talks about how violent content can make kids less sensitive to real-life violence and kind of uh, undermine their sense of empathy, and that seems to be one of the better correlations that's been proven by the research. Riley talks a lot about social media platforms, and she says you should really avoid your, letting your kids have social media until they're as old as possible, and then once they're on social media, you should really vigilantly kind of look at and regulate what they do online. Kamenet says that's not possible, and also you should develop trust with your child and not need to do that. What do you think? (laughs) How persuasive did you find these arguments? I mean, I I think there's this kind of American idea that Riley is very much part of, which is that secrets are bad, and if your child has a secret online life, that there's a problem with that. And she really is very strongly believes in surveillance. I mean, I definitely tend more toward the Kamenetz trusting model. You know, your your kids need privacy. You need to arm them with tools. And, you know, both, both authors say that you need to talk to your kids about pornography, about what it is that, that better prepares them to see these images and makes it less likely that they will actually watch pornography if parents have kind of um, discussed it with them. But I think you, at a certain level, there has to be trust, and you have to trust that your kids are going to be able to navigate online the same way they navigate kind of walking around a city without you. Going back to what we can extrapolate from grown-ups uh, to, to children, right now, of course, there is a lot of concern around privacy and social media and Google and sort of all of these mega corporations gathering information on their users and monetizing them. And I'm curious if either author addresses that for children when, for example, you have schools that are 
handing out iPads to every kindergartner or making arrangements with Google to have one-on-one Chromebooks and the like? Yeah, I mean, I think both authors kind of question the idea that there are real educational benefits to uh, having a lot of screens in classrooms. And Riley is probably the more suspicious of the two, of the sort of social media industrial complex and what it's doing to kids. And for her, this is a, a big reason that kids should stay off screen. I mean, one, one thing that's interesting is Naomi Schaefer Riley, as you mentioned, is a, is a fellow at the American in- Enterprise Institute, which is a right-leaning think tank. And yet, that argument against the sort of corporate media, social media, industrial complex sort of sounds like a traditional left-leaning liberal suspicion of big tech. That really surprised me, too. While she kind of trends right, she's a free thinker. And, but on other arguments, it definitely seemed like she was a more – Riley was a, the more traditional of the two. She you – know, Kamenet has a big kind of systemic – liberal argument saying you can't really expect parents to cut back, especially poor parents to cut back on screens if you don't have guaranteed paid sick leave, guaranteed parental leave, if you don't have, you know, I would add sort of universal health care and guaranteed minimum wage, a higher guaranteed minimum wage, whereas Riley doesn't pose the systemic question at all. She sort of says parents should cut back on screens unilaterally, and she doesn't look at all of the context in which the screens are happening. Well, that brings us to your current country of residence, France, where you have those nice amenities like universal health care. What is the French approach to screen time? How different is it from it, the way it is handled in the U.S.? Well, I think French parents are grappling with screens. I mean, it's all fairly new here as well, the same way that American parents are and parents all over the world are. I think one thing in France is their much more comfortable setting very firm limits on their kids and sticking to those. I mean, that you don't have the level of negotiation between parents and kids that you see in kind of middle-class American families. And you also have a kind of suspicion of new technology. I mean, I remember when I had small children and baby Einstein was out. This is before it was kind of discredited in America. And I would show, I thought, this is great new technology that's going to help my children learn and grow. And help you take a shower. And 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 help me take a shower. And uh, I remember showing it to one of my French neighbors, and she was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, this will have no. <laughs> and so screens are obviously, you know, you have less control over that than you do over showing your, your baby a video. But there's a kind of questioning of any extreme behavior. And, and I think that French parents kind of naturally do what the American Academy of Pediatrics does, which is you have to do everything else first. And then if there's time for screens, okay, we'll fit that in. Right. You talked about some of the risks that both authors mentioned. You mentioned obesity. One thing you didn't bring up was attention deficit disorder, which is one of those things, of course, very hard to prove causation, maybe easier to prove correlation. But when you talk to grownups about the effects that screens have had on their own attention spans, they're sort of unambiguous about the fact that it's extremely distracting. And I, you, many people say it's it's hard to pick up a book and kind of dive into it without, while you have your phone next to you, sort of humming and beeping and, and notifying you of various important status updates. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely felt that even when I was reading these books that I wanted to keep checking my email, partly because it was kept talking about email. But yeah, and that's kind of Riley's argument, which is, look, we don't need to wait for the perfect studies. We ourselves, the parents, are the guinea pig, and we know that we can't pay attention to a book or have a, you know, kind of sit through dinner without checking our Twitter feeds. So obviously, this is having some effect on our kids. Let's not kid ourselves. What was the most powerful takeaway for you from Naomi Schaefer Riley's book, Be the Parent, Please? I guess I, I was slightly taken aback by her moral argument, which was, you know, we're we parents, by giving our kids screens, are not parenting properly, that we should be attentive to our kids all the time, and we should, we're sort of giving up our parental responsibility and replacing ourselves with screens. But on the other hand, I kind of have the nagging suspicion that maybe in some ways she's right. I kind of disagreed with her on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, I found her argument quite compelling, or at least compelling enough to make me feel a little bit guilty. 
Well, that's um, very com- easy to do and <laughs> just make a parent feel guilty. <laughs> but I mean, that's interesting, right? Because she's saying that she's arguing that we're sort of not parenting and giving up on parenting during a period in which everyone else or sort of the main argument has been that people are over parenting. Yeah. And that's kind of Kimenez's argument, which is, you know, we chastise these mothers at the playground who are checking their work emails. But in fact, she says if she wasn't at the playground, she- checking her email, she'd have to be at the office. And mm-hmm. it's thanks to this technology that she can spend more time with her kids. And she makes the kind of larger argument, which is parents today and this phenomenon of, with this phenomenon of um, intensive parenting spend much more time with their kids, many more hours per week on average than parents did in the 1960s and the 1970s. And it's exhausting. And it's a lot to ask of a parent to spend every moment kind of totally focusing and interacting with their children. And also, and both Kamenetz and Riley make an argument that I thought was very interesting and that I hear echoed in France all the time, which is if you don't constantly pay attention to kids, if you let them kind of be a little bit bored, you take that risk, they will learn how to entertain themselves, which I like as an argument in theory, but hasn't actually happened in my own family. So I'm not sure if it really does work. Was there any like nugget of practical advice that you thought I am taking that and I am applying it to my own family with three kids? I think the biggest kind of definite takeaway from the book is never look at screens while driving. I mean, I don't even have a car, so I'm not really guilty of this. But uh, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. Like apparently what Kamenet says is that car accidents are the leading cause of death among school-aged children and that something like one in four car accidents involves a cell phone. So if there's no other takeaway from this book, it would be turn off your screens while you're driving. All right. Pamela, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Pamela Druckerman is a contributing opinion writer for The Times. She is the author of the excellent book, Bringing Up Bebe, and the forthcoming There Are No Grown-Ups, a midlife coming-of-age story. This week in the book review, she wrote about two books about parenting and screen time, The Art of Screen Time by Anya Kamenetz and Be the Parent, Please by Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Ben Austin joins us now from Chicago. His new book is called High Risers, Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. People hear Cabrini Green and they just think total misery, failure, sort of the the worst of public housing. But before we go into why that is and how that happened, let's just start with talking about the the nature of public housing in this country to begin with. Sort of when did America get into the business of creating public housing projects? Yeah, it was it was a New Deal program starting in the thirties and then and then really ramping up in the forties and, and by the fifties we have high rise public housing. But you know, it's this idea in the thirties that there just isn't available housing and that the private market is totally failing to deliver, you know, adequate, affordable decent housing for, for people of, 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 of low means. And what did those original housing projects look like? You mentioned that, you know, they didn't become high-rise buildings until the 50s. How did that change then the nature of what public housing was, that they became these high-rise buildings? The first buildings were often low-rises and some kind of mid. But even the, the initial high-rises were, were well-built, and, you know, and especially for the housing that they replaced, they were really, it was thought by a lot of people to sort of be a step up into the middle class. I mean, you know, you, people were living in chopped up apartments that were fire traps, cold water flats. So that this felt really, a, a really a step up. You know, people even would sort of talk about it being like heavenly or like paradise. I mean, they, they, they felt safe. So there was a lot of optimism around these. There was a lot of optimism for sure. And were these you mentioned that it was a New Deal program. Were these programs generally embraced by the Democratic Party, and was it, were, was it ever a bipartisan effort in this country? Then as now, it was always really complicated, and there was always a lot of backlash. I mean, this idea of sort of like the anathema that people feel towards entitlement programs always existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of, sort of this, especially this idea that we, you know, we think in this country that there's, some ideal of home ownership and, you know, the frontiersmen and the log cabin and, you know, that this is idealized. And so the sense of home ownership and it was always sort of there was this backlash by both 
realtor, realty groups and, and the private market and also by politicians. I mean, even, even in different departments under FDR opposed it. You mentioned that this was intended or sort of seen as a kind of a golden pass into the middle class. And I think one of the misconceptions about the, the, the way these programs were originally intended is that it wasn't for the poor, right? It wasn't meant to be for the poor. It wasn't a step above homelessness. They were originally created for working class families. It didn't... For the working poor. Yeah, I mean, so that it wasn't, it wasn't charity. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was thought of that, that you would you would redevelop the slums through public housing. It wasn't, it wasn't recreating the slums, it was actually replacing it. And so there were, there were limits on how much you could, could earn both the floor and the ceiling. Right. They screened tenants and they were working. They usually had at least one parent working, sometimes both. You know, and also, I, mean, I think especially for, for African Americans who were excluded from the open market of housing, this suddenly was the only option. They were cut off from, from actually buying or even renting most places. All right. I want to talk about race in a minute. But first, go back to you mentioned that there was this floor in the ceiling. And this inevitably leads to that phrase, unintended consequences. What were the unintended consequences of saying, well, it's for these people in terms of, of income, but not these people? One of the things that I think about a lot is that public housing also gets blamed for all of the decline of the inner city, right? So like, you know, at the same time that high-rises are being built, white people are fleeing the city and just hundreds of thousands of people are, are, are leaving the city along with tax base and then, and then industry as well. So cities as a whole get poorer. And in public housing, there's suddenly less intense demand for low-income housing, more housing is opening up, and re- working-class residents decide to leave and, and the greater share of residents become poorer. And as cities become poor, there's also this question of what do we do with them, with these people, you know, that they need housing as well. There is sort of this sense of the public housing as an unintended consequence. It becomes poorer and poorer, mm-hmm. and a much larger percentage uh, around financial aid in some way. And, and this is, you know, it's a little bit different in New York City, which does it better than, than other places. And demand was different there, but, but certainly in places like Chicago, which I'm writing about, that that was the result. All right, let's talk about Chicago. The area that Cabrini-Green was sort of situated was in an existing predominantly African-American slum. So how did they choose that spot? What did they think was going to happen? And was it segregated from the outset? And was that actually institutionalized or that just was ended up de facto segregation? So so it wasn't actually an African-American slum. It was a sort of infamous Italian slum when the first Cabrini buildings were built. And what's really sort of strange about it is that it's only about 10 blocks away from the Gold Coast, the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, and Lake Michigan up there. And you think about it's such an anomaly in segregated Chicago, and so it, it becomes both at first like an Italian slum and a black slum, you know, lower class, and then more and more it becomes a, a, a black settlement on the near north side of Chicago, which is... It's sort of out of character for the city. How did it become so segregated? The neighborhood or, or the, the housing, development? The Cabrini Green. There is this sense white people started to feel in, in, in big cities that public housing was for African Americans, like this sensibility. And, you know, in the same way that, that white people are moving away from cities altogether, they, they make a choice to flee. I mean, there's this moment where there are row houses there initially, and they remain segregated much longer, but then suddenly 23 towers are up around, and most of them are predominantly black, and the, the, the white people who were in the row houses decide to leave. When was Cabrini Green built? When did they start to construct it, and when was it sort of fully populated? So the, the row houses are built in the 40s, mm-hmm. the first set of high-rises in the 50s, and then the last in the, in the early 60s. And, and by then, there were about 3,600 units and between 15,000 and 20,000 people at its peak. Were they originally predominantly African-American? Were there any rules sort of set in place of like it should be X percent? What we know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so initially, the, you know, there were these fears in white communities that the public housing was like this Trojan horse, a way for the government to move black people into white neighborhoods. And so initially there was this rule that the government had that there was a, you couldn't change the existing character of the neighborhood, so you would have these quotas. So initially when, when Cabrini Green was built, it had to be 80% white, 
and 20% black because that's what the neighborhood was. And those were the Cabrini Row Houses. And as the neighborhood changed, and actually as the, you know, white people would move out and, and there would be hundreds of black families waiting for a unit and they couldn't find a white family to replace them. So you had these empty units and the, the public housing, the Chicago Housing Authority had to decide what to do with these empty units. Do you keep the quotas or do you actually like, like, you know, give somebody who needs a home a unit? They they manipulated sort of who ended up, the Chicago Housing Authority, who ended up in Cabrini-Green in other ways too, right? Because they started to evict working class families for whom the projects were initially intended. Yeah, so there is, you know, people would earn above a certain a certain amount and they were they were supposed to go. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that 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 people got around that, but there is, you know, I think that's a problem that we still wrestle with, right? Mm-hmm. Like we think about are, are these subsidies permanent? Do you get them for a lifetime? You know, you're sort of the lucky one to get this very limited resource. And so that that kind of debate that was happening in the 30s and 40s and 50s is still going on now as, as the resources are even more limited. So you have a number of things going on, it seems like, in a, I, I don't know, simultaneously or if there was a cascading effect. First, you have the sort of racial segregation that takes place. Then you have the shift away or simultaneously the shift away from working class to poorer families. You also, you, you note in your book, there was a policy that in unintentionally created a disincentive to marry if you lived in the housing project. How did that work and what were the results there? So, I mean, that was a problem with, with welfare more generally. Mm-hmm. That suddenly the, the amount you can get as a subsidy, as your family earned more, you would, you would get less from the government. And so it's sort of a, a counter incentive. You know, so people would, in their units would either not have men living there or, you know, other adults or they would hide them. But I think to me, that's also becomes less of the, an issue, you know, and sort of, you know, that becomes kind of such the fear mongering that we mm-hmm. get, you know, even by, you know, say Reagan and, and talking about the, the welfare queen in Chicago who, you know, is driving a Cadillac kind of story. But I mean, it did have consequences for the people living there, particularly the children. And, and I know this is about a, a different Chicago housing project, the Henry Horner projects, but there was that Alex Kotlowitz book, There Are No Children Here, about sort of what this, what did this do to the community life in Cabrini-Green? Many residents had told me stories of both that they were, you know, women who told me about men being not allowed to be there and sort of they had to either disguise that their, their spouses were there, the parents of their children, or children telling me that they would, I mean, one guy I remember telling me that he counted the number of men in his, in his high-rise when he was a kid and it was like five and there just weren't a lot of men around for all sorts of reasons, to help them, you know, to, to guide them through the day, to, to supervise children, all kinds of things. So give us a sense of the timeline here. You mentioned that the first sort of row houses were built in the 40s, the high rises later in the 50s and, and, and afterwards. When did it start to get bad? Like, when did it start to go from this is a great project that we are expanding and we have high hopes for to the sense of this is a really terrible kind of place to a sort of last resort place to live? The deterioration happens in the 60s and 70s for sure. And, you know, I think by, you know, we're at the 50th anniversary of the King assassination and then the riots that ensued. And, you know, Cabrini Green had people, you know, rioting and, and, and you know, the kids ran out of school. They pulled people from the cars. They, people were shooting from the high rises. And, and so, you know, at that point, you had the same thing that happened in lots of areas, that some businesses left and that, you know, more residents who could leave did leave. So by then, certainly you're seeing that the, the spikes in crime that are affecting cities all over are, are really are, are, are sort of, you know, the worst ravages of that are happening in public housing. And there's also, they're poorly managed. And so buildings take so much care to keep up. And that wasn't happening from the start. And they were underfunded. They were underfunded and also mismanaged. So it's both, both the loss of money, but, you know, the money needed to do this. And you have it getting less money from rent because the, the residents are poor. Or they're paying a percentage of their rent, their income. But then they're also poorly managed. They're not cared for. They're not tended. Then you get something like the green spaces around them are paved over to save money. And you also put up these metal curtains, fences on the, on the high-rise balconies, which sort of give this prison look. 
And then you have that feeling of like, oh, this isn't just separate geographically. It's separate in, a, in an entirely different way. I guess I'd also say that that nightmare vision that you talked about, I mean, one of the things I write about in my book is that, you know, these are people who struggle to make a home in like this, you know, this most infamous or, you know, notorious public housing development. And that there was always like a mix of things in there. This is a community of 15,000 people. So you had this full range of humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like defying that expectation that it was only this one way. And so that, you know, that, that, that there was also all kinds of agency and all kinds of, you know, flowering of life, which is, to me, that's almost more surprising for people. Like people expect the murder story. My publisher, when they sent back their first idea for a cover, it was like this solitary plinth and, you know, in the most like austere setting, mm-hmm. you know, with this like garbage around it. And I was like, man, that doesn't challenge readers in any way. That's like exactly the story they think they're going to get. And it's also not the accurate story. It's not the full story. So I guess I just push back a little bit on that, that like even, even as things get, it is a housing of last resort in that it's a place where people who are on welfare are sent who can't find housing anywhere else. They do become some of the poorest areas. They're actually like the poorest zip codes in the entire country at, some, at one point. But there's also still like, so much else going on there. Your cover, as it ended up, has a picture of two, in particular, African-American children sort of, you know, joyously running out in front of the building. Looks like they're maybe headed off to school and a bunch of other kids after them. And I'm curious, when you went, you, you mentioned earlier that, that part of what you did for this book is talk to many former residents. Were there happy memories? What what did what were people's impressions? Was it like we narrowly escaped or was it more nuanced? Both nuanced and also kind of binary simplistic. So Cabrini Green, because of its location, is like constantly in the news and, you know, becomes like a pop culture sensation as well. Like it's in TV shows, movies, Good Times, Cooley High, Candyman. There are documentaries about the Jesse White Tumblr. There, there are plays that are set there that, you know, that are... There are other movies that are set there. So it just, it's just constantly in the news. It's a name that is sort of used as a shorthand to mean like scary inner city place. But why? I write about this. In part, like it's its proximity. Because it's around wealth and around white people and around the, the news reporters, this is where they can go to get their story and that kind of builds. I mean, I write about like there are murders there that are, are horrid, but they're ones that are happening other places in the city at the same time. And the ones at Cabrini Green become the sensation they become the, the, the story and like all of the city's resources are like, are like dumped into these 70 acres while the rest of the city is like just sort of shrugging and being like, what's going on? So it becomes this name. There's this moment in the Mayor Jane Byrne moves in there in the 80s, you know, and this is to, to stop a, an epidemic of violence. And she lives like four blocks away. You know, she lives in a, in a luxury condo a few blocks away. And it becomes a national story. And then that kind of builds. If something happens at Cabrini Green, that's news in itself because it's a place that people know. There's, there's a recurring skit on Saturday Night Live in the 80s about a, a teenage single mom, and her name is Cabrini Green Harlem Watts Jackson. Hmm. This place had entered this pantheon this, of urban, scary black places. And at that point, you know, everybody knows about it. And, you know, you asked about sort of the kind of stories residents told, like everyone I spoke to had spoken to the media before because the media has been there a ton. And there was like this expectation of like, well, what kind of story does this guy want? And you, you would get sort of either like Candyman or Good Times. Like they'd either tell you the, you know, I saw the dead body. It was, you know, they were shooting. They were like, you know, this is the first time that, that I saw someone get shot or I got shot. Or they would say the opposite, which is this kind of nostalgia we knew everybody. We were all family. And there's this sense of community that they wanted to stress in opposition to that other image. Now, both are true. Like, they're, they're, they're components of both. Like, the people who told me, you know, we were all family, you could sort of sit around and, you know, a few days later, you're getting more stories. You'd be like, yeah, that person that was like family that I knew, they also did violence to my family. But the violence alone was not the, the whole story either. And, and certainly, like, now that public housing is gone and, like, the reasons to tear it down were, were these ideas about the dangers of concentrated poverty and isolation. And we, we discover that we still have concentrated poverty and isolation in Chicago, and it's, it's just as damning and dangerous, and yet, yet it's less visible. It's less physically, you know, it's not standing up in high-rises that we can see automatically and have to deal with. 
Did it have to end up this way? I mean, was it doomed to failure from the get-go? Or could things have been done so that this would have been a happy housing project and a model for for public housing and sort of the leader? There's so many reasons why why it's hard to say it would be a happy story. And one is like what we were talking about before, that just just the sort of backlash against any sort of like social safety net program. And the question you're asking is really like, as a country, could we have thought differently about social safety net programs? Mm-hmm. Could we have invested in them more fully? Because what happens is like there's, there's still sort of resistance to it even in the 30s and the 40s. And by the 90s, that's the mainstream. Even mainstream Democrats are feeling like we need to get rid of these. And, you know, the private sector could probably do it better. Looking at this, this I you would have to qualify it as a as a failure. And the, the last towers were demolished in 2011. What's the lesson that we learned from this? I mean, how do you do it better? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because, you know, when I, when I think about this, the public sector has certainly failed in so many ways and given a lot of ammunition to the other side that these kind of programs uh, are, are difficult to pull off. But the thing that we see is we still have such need, and we're, we're actually in like uh, an affordable housing crisis that isn't that different than it was in the 30s and the 40s, you know, that there, is, there are no affordable rentals in cities. People are being pushed out. There's just not access to homes. It doesn't have to be high-rise public housing. It won't be. But there needs to be a sort of whole, whole menu of, of housing and, and investment in this kind of housing. One of the lessons is, like, we need to invest in this. I mean, what a, like, giant experiment by the country to do this, you know, to build these whole communities where, where people are going to live and, and because there was such need. And so it's not going to be that, but there are ways to do this, to do investment. The other sort of fallacy is that, you know, we, we think of this as, you know, the government's role in this, but the government is, is subsidizing all housing right. in the private market. Right. And so if you own a home and you're getting a mortgage interest deduction, that amount that the government spends annually is way more than the entire budget for HUD for the for housing and urban development. There's both this sense of that sort of investment and thinking about it more honestly and, and more, more sort of collectively. I mean, that, that's sort of one of the big ideas, like that at some point in the country we thought like that this is part of our collective responsibility. And even like one of the lessons of the New Deal that, that, that poverty wasn't thought of as like a personal moral failing. Mm-hmm. It was thought of as something that we, we need to sort of work together to right. And I think that's completely changed, that, that poverty is thought of as this kind of you know, problem that the people who are experiencing it are bringing upon themselves, and that should change. I mean, all sort of like the, the structures even to, to lift people out of poverty have, have kind of you know, disappeared as well you know, in sort of schools and other things. So we need to think about investment differently and and sort of our collective role in in doing that. Well, it's an important argument and a a really fascinating history of public housing and of Cabrini-Green in particular. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ben Austin is author of High Risers, Cabrini-Green and the Fate of American Public Housing. This is John Williams, and I'm here with my colleagues Greg Coles, Gal Beckerman, and Tina Jordan to talk about what we're reading this week. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi John. Hey. All right, Greg. We'll get the suspense <laughs> out of the way early, and we'll start with you. What are you reading? I am still yes reading a book called Ulysses by James <laughs> Joyce. And you will be reading it for the next. <laughs> well, actually, I, I feel like I'm making pretty good progress in this compared with The Power Broker, which I feel like I was reading for 30 years. <laughs> you might be done with this by the end of summer or so. Yeah, yeah that, that feels about right. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I started in February, and rather than taking a whole year to read it, um, I, I'm going to do it in about six months. Are I, you reading other things concurrently, or is this it? For work, yeah. I, I am, but this is my my main kind okay. of pleasure reading on the train on, and pleasure uh, in quotes. Yes, no, it's truly pleasurable. I I often laugh out loud while I'm reading wow. it. My wife asked me a lot. I was I read it in bed. I read it on the train, and I was reading it in bed last night. She said, "How are you liking that book?" And I said, "You know, it's crazy, and it's got no narrative momentum at all. There's like just no forward progress, and it." 
it's a book that stutters. It stops and starts and it's you know, like shifts gears within the like four times in the space of a page. And you yeah. feel like you're just standing in the middle of Times Square with this onslaught of sensation and chaos. Yeah. And so I, I read a passage and I think, well, that's what I'm going to talk about on the podcast. And by the bottom of the page, it's <laughs> onto something completely new. And then, you know, 20 pages later, I don't remember what it was I wanted to talk about on the podcast. I feel a little like Maggie Haberman covering the White House. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> like, wait, where do I even begin? <laughs> so I'm about 200 pages in now. I've, I've just finished a very long section following Bloom, and I'm about to pick up again with Stephen Dedalus. And I, I go back and forth with who the James Joyce character is. I, I started the book figuring it was Dedalus because he's the character in Portrait mm-hmm. of the Artist as a young man. He, I'm accustomed to thinking of Dedalus as the James Joyce character. But now I've been with Bloom for so long here that I think, well, of course, that's James Joyce. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not that anyone. Greg, the answer is both. Yeah, <laughs> of, of course. We contain answer, multitudes. <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> um, and and part of the point, I think, is we contain multitudes. How so, long is the book? Is it a thousand pages? It's, no, it's, no, it's uh, maybe 850. <laughs> I'm, I'm flipping to the end now to tell you it's uh, no it's not even 800 it's um, oh come this, on this edition of it which is the vintage edition that was published you know probably 25 years ago it, it's got the title ulysses running up the side of the front cover i'm wearing a fedora and glasses <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh it's got 781 pages. Well, now I expect you to be done by pages. the end of April. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> curious at what point you kick him off the podcast if he chooses Finnegan's Wake next. That's... <laughs> <laughs> it might happen well before that. God. I, I, <laughs> I, I did want to read a paragraph that made me laugh out loud in this Bloom section that I just finished. It's so kind of visceral and physical and animalistic. It's lunchtime. He's He's watching people. One of the um, funny things is he's shifting around topic to topic. There's a little riff on vegetarianism and how it affects your digestive tract and your personality. That actually, maybe I'll, I'll read that part instead of what I was going to read. His eyes followed the high figure in homespun beard and bicycle, a listening woman at his side, coming from the vegetarian. Only wedgebobbles and fruit. Don't eat a beefsteak. If you do, the eyes of that cow will pursue you through all eternity. They say it's healthier. Wind and watery, though. Tried it. Keep you on the run all day. Bad as a bloater. Dreams all night. Why do they call that thing they gave me nut steak? Nutarians, fruitarians, to give you the idea you were eating rump steak. Absurd. Salty, too. Keep you sitting by the tap all night. Her stockings are loose over her ankles. It's, it's it's hard to read. The just a pluck, <laughs> just a pluck out, right? To, exactly. So I, I'm going to skip a few sentences and jump to the part where he's talking about the, the effect of vegetarianism on the personality. Those literary ethereal people they are all. Dreamy, cloudy, symbolistic, aesthetes they are. I wouldn't be surprised if it was that kind of food you see produces the like waves of the brain, the poetical. For example, one of those policemen sweating Irish stew into their shirts, you couldn't squeeze a line of poetry out of him. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Gal, what are you reading this week? I'm reading Rachel Kushner's The Flamethrowers. I saw that she has a new book coming out, The Mars Room, I believe it's called, Mm -hmm. April 15th. And so in anticipation of that, I decided to read The Flamethrowers, which I'd never read and always kind of suspected that I might like. And I do like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's an interesting kind of stew stew of a book <laughs> with a, with just you know you've got motorcycle racing the art world 70s political radicalism you have new york in that era which is a pretty unique uh, environment you have italy and then you have this history also in it of like the futurists from the, the you know the teens and the 20s kind of proto fascist groups and then the radical underground both in new york and in italy so it's this just like th- there's a lot of really interesting kind of political and historical stuff in there, but it never feels didactic. The book centers on a character named, uh, whose nickname is Reno. We never l- learn her, her real name. And her, it's kind of a Bildungsroman of sorts, or kind of coming of age through or this. Or a Kunstler roman too, right? It's right, an, she, right. She's, she's an kind artist of learning figure. how to be an yeah. artist. And, and really kind of being pushed and pulled by all these different men, very kind of larger than life 
characters that she comes into contact with. And it doesn't really have kind of a clear narrative arc, you could call it. But what it does have, which I found really uh, just so energetic uh, just in, in the writing, is like just dropping you into these moments. I mean, she goes to to Italy, the, the character goes to Italy and suddenly finds herself with this kind of Red Brigades-style underground, you know, radical Maoist, you know, <laughs> who knows... Uh, exactly what their 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 color of of communist is, but like, but you know, she's there in the living room with them, kind of experiencing this whole world, you know. And then she's like in the blackout in 1977 in New York, uh, like in Times Square, and and really dropping you in to these to these environments that in a in a very vivid way. I mean, I just I just kept feeling as I was reading it, like it's just energetic, like mm-hmm. the writing is energetic, the 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 character is one you just want to like. I mean, the whole book starts out. Yeah. With with her riding a motorcycle to the Bonneville Salt Flats, which I guess are in Utah, Utah. Uh-huh. Yeah. to try to kind of race this bike as fast as she can. And then by a weird set of coincidences, finds herself being talked into trying to break the woman's land speed land speed record <laughs> in a car in a, in a car in a car called the spirit of italy and it's just very like vivacious like the 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 writing of it and the and um and and you're you're pulled along in a way so i'm very curious to see and and I, I, the, the thing i was impressed by the energy and impressed by this ability to really explore issues of like you know conceptual art and what it really means and what it's good for and politics in a deep way, but and it's hard to do that in a, in a novel and not kind of lose some of the momentum. kind of the momentum and the yep. kind of the, the characters and and, the, and all the stuff that kind of makes us want to actually read. <laughs> but she, but she manages to pull it off in a, in a really wonderful way. Yeah, I enjoyed the book too. I'm really looking forward to the new one. I'm mm-hmm. curious to see what it's like. Tina, how about you? You have something brand new. I have something brand new. I'm actually reading Two Sisters by Osni Seierstadt, which was recently reviewed by Parle for us. It's the story of two Somali-Norwegian sisters who one day in 2013 up and left their family and went to join the Islamic State in Syria. Nonfiction. Um, nonfiction. And I'm reading this because I'm planning a trip to Norway and I always like to, mm. re- to you know, read as widely as I can. You know, in retrospect, this is a interesting way to dive into Norway. Yeah. Or a trip to ISIS. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, ISIS, I could do for my trip to Syria. <laughs> and so it's very interesting. So these two sisters were devout. They had young, they had siblings. They weren't only children. And they were growing increasingly devout, more devout than their parents throughout high school. But their parents weren't worried. They used, I, you know, I, I'm fairly early on in the book, but the parents are telling that their own friends, we don't have to worry about boyfriends. We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to worry about that. They're they're devout. They're such good girls. In fact, they were constantly on the rest of the family for not being more <laughs> devout. And you know, as a as a parent myself, as I go through these first pages, of course, what I'm seeing is that parents really don't know who the kids are hanging out mm-hmm. with. You know, yes, they're at the mosque, but th- they don't know who their daughter's friends are and. The daughters end up, you know, over the time – I just want to read you a very short passage. Over time, they're – as they grow more and more conservative, they're fully covering themselves, not just with the hijab, but with, you know – I'm not going to say it because I'm going to not pronounce it, but the full head covering. Mm -hmm. And they're at school one day, and one classmate says to Layla, one of the sisters, isn't it hot underneath all that? It's hotter in hell. Layla retorted. (laughs) And that was just sort of like what they had become. And Mm. this is the kind of narrative, fully reported nonfiction that I loved. Obviously, the parents, Sadiq and Sarah, cooperated fully. Mm. But they did hear from the girls for a period of time. One of the brothers over social media, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and these little like bursts of information would arrive every six months, once a year. Mm. Later on, there were some phone calls. I'm just at the point where their father has gone to Syria himself to try to find them, which is involved because, you know, you fly to Turkey and basically you pay somebody to smuggle you over the border. Um, I guess I'm sort of interested in what, you know, makes kids do something like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're hearing about it. 
man, this this seems like a normal family, you know, loving family, meals together, people had responsibilities, jobs around that, you know, involved parents. It just. It must be nerve-wracking as a parent. It it must. Well, Hmm. yeah, now I'm thinking. hmm. But (laughs) I'm trying to put myself in the mother's shoes and it's. It just must be devastating. How much of a presence is the author in the book? I, I know um, Parle addressed this a little bit in her review, kind of the, the role of the author in reporting the story. I out. think later on in the book is from reading the review, like I'm going to have – that's going to become an issue yeah. as I grow, go further in the book. But I've read the author's note at the end and there's a very long appended note in which she explains that you know, although the parents cooperated fully and had the right to read the manuscript, they couldn't change anything, you know. I forget, did Pearl address the prose at all? Because you wonder about translations. I mean, mm-hmm. how many Norwegian translators are there working in, in the American publishing world? <laughs> who aren't tied up with Who aren't tied up with Yo and, Yo, and Yo Nesbo. In fact, I've heard, that, I've heard that Scandinavian translators are paid an astronomical amount per book because there aren't enough good ones. Mm-hmm. Could be a side gig. And her, I mean, her previous book was the one about the... Bookseller of Cabo. No, 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 no. She wrote Breivik. Oh, that's right. She wrote a book called One of Us that's about right. Breivik, the, yeah. the man who massacred See, uh, the students in Norway. And, 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 and that was on our That was one ten. of our top ten yeah. of the year. I think maybe yeah. I'm not going to read that before. This may be enough. This is, but this is a fascinating glimpse into immigrant culture in Norway and the response of the police to Somali parents about mm-hmm. the disappearance of mm-hmm. Somali children. Do the girls come back? Oh, we don't know that. I haven't gotten there gotten yet. There. Okay, because that wasn't in the in the review. It didn't say, and I wondered about that, but maybe that's the, the, the father spoiler alert. Find that, yeah. I, I believe there's a big spoiler here. Okay. One but I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that book is called Two Sisters. Two Sisters yeah, by, by Osne Seierstadt is how I'm going to say it and probably uh, mangle it. I always just say Seierstadt, but I'm sure that <laughs> you're more <laughs> accurate in terms well, of Well, anyway. Well, yeah. What are you reading, well, speaking John? of that general region of the world, I'm, I'm reading a book that I'll be brief about because I only just started it uh, a couple of days ago and I'm only about 50 pages in. But it's a book called The Evenings. It's a novel by Gerard Reeve, R-E-V-E. And it was published in 1947. It's a Dutch novel. It was originally published in 47, and it was just translated into English for the first time, I think, early last year and put out by the Pushkin Press here. And the Times ran a piece about it, I think, well before it was published even here, saying that it had been published in Britain, was doing well, and it kind of told the backstory of it. And essentially, this is a book that is uh, very much about kind of post-war youthful malaise, and it is in the Netherlands considered the 20th century's, the the best 20th century novel written by, Mm. written in Dutch. And what I find, and it's about this 23-year-old guy who lives in a cramped apartment with his aging parents and kind of has disdain for them and, you know, looks at them with this kind of cold eye and and dark humor and kind of runs around with his friends at night and, and is kind of at loose ends between jobs. And the quote from the Pushkin Press publisher, I think, at least says where it's positioned and, and, and it does give the feel of what I think of the book so far. He says, for me, it really does connect to so many books from that period like Salinger or Camus who portray this alienated young man in a kind of existential crisis. I also feel that there's a direct line from it to Knausgaard's autobiographical novels in which a lot of time is spent on not a lot happening. So I'm not, I'm not expecting a lot more plot to unfold, but I think that the, the character's voice will deepen over the course of the novel and I'm curious to see, to see where it goes from here. That's it. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you. John. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.